The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. ESG has become established as a key business theme as companies and investors seek to navigate the climate crisis, energy transition, social megatrends, mounting regulatory attention, and pressure from other stakeholders. The rapidly evolving landscape has become inundated with acronyms, and we aim to break them down with industry experts. Welcome to the first episode of ESG Currents, brought to you by Bloomberg Intelligence, your guide to navigating the evolving ESG space, one acronym at a time. My name is Eric Kane. I'm the director of ESG research for Bloomberg Intelligence. I'm one of the hosts for today's episode, and I'm joined by Andy Stevenson, a senior climate analyst, also with Bloomberg Intelligence. Hey, Eric. So for today's episode, we're going to be talking specifically about the E in ESG. And to get us started, Andy, why don't you walk us through what exactly the E in ESG is and why do people seem to focus on it more perhaps than S and G? Thanks, Eric. So yes, the uh, E in ESG, E stands for environment. Uh, and the question is, why do people seem to focus on it more than S and G? One of the, there's two real reasons behind that. One is E is very data intensive. From an environmental perspective, you can get data on a lot of different uh, ways that the, a, a company is exposed to the environment. It may not just be climate change. You're talking about water, uh, different kinds of chemicals, lead. There's a whole host of things on the environmental side that are you know, costs for a company, for example, uh, uh, pollution that is affecting you and I from a health uh, perspective. These, these data points are, are fairly accessible and it's much easier to get uh, a handle on those kind of data points uh, than the other two of the acronyms, which are S and G. S being probably the more, most difficult in terms of really trying to identify the, a, a company's social impact. And G is really a focus on governance and how a company's uh, C-suite is able to handle kind of the gyrations of the marketplace. So these are much more uh, qualitative uh, assessments, uh, whereas the E, obviously, from an environmental standpoint, there's the climate crisis, which is uh, affecting us all and having a pretty profound impact on the economy as a whole. Uh, but it also is uh, looks at the the not just what is happening in terms of storms and things like that, but the access to water. There's a whole host of environmental concerns that a company needs to be aware of just to do, go about their business, whatever that business may be. I would I would certainly agree, Andy, and I I think you know in my mind and perhaps a little bit of personal bias here, um, climate within E and of course you know climate is is one of many uh, E topics is is perhaps 
you know, the most significant issue that we face as a global society. So you you started to touch on it a little bit, but to me, it's it, it really transcends, you know, the environmental categorization and it has to do with, you know, other kind of social topics like public health and migration, equality, food security, uh, just to name a few. So in, in my mind, I think that's also something that kind of contributes to uh, you know, this topic of, of E getting perhaps more attention. Sure. It's it's in the newspaper every day, more and more. Uh, we've seen it in the last several weeks, probably more than we ever hoped to see it in terms of exposure to wildfire smoke, which affects public health. That's a, an impact that is not directly uh, being borne by businesses, for example. It's affecting, you know, young people and old people as well as everyone in between. Um We've we've seen you know flooding that is obviously uh, disrupts businesses, but it disrupts lives. And I think that that, as you say, Eric, is really what why people are focusing on the uh, climate change aspect because it really is you know transforming the way we live. Absolutely. So I think we we both agree, and I think it's fair to say that you know for for both of us in in our uh, everyday work, we we both tend to focus on climate and analyzing companies. Um, and, and looking at, at performance related to, to things associated with climate. But E is not just about climate change, right, Andy? So there, there are other key uh, issues that we think about when we're looking at uh, overall E within ESG. That's right. I mean, if you want to think back, you know, even 10 or 15 years before the climate crisis became kind of the biggest thing that'd be happening in the world, uh, you know, from an existential standpoint, the, the, the E was really focused on health, public health, and how, you know, different businesses, how they go about their business affects public health. So you think about air pollution, and just to name a few companies in the, in the news in the last uh, two days, AT&T was in the news today for uh, the exposure that their pipes are having for lead. Uh, and how that's affecting, uh, you know, public health 3M with these sort of forever chemicals. These are the things that that really E was sort of built for initially in terms of of understanding the health impacts of things that are uh, that are byproducts of business. Things like water scarcity have also become a, a pretty uh, important factor when it comes to some businesses which are very dependent on them, but. Uh, for food supplies and, and other and other areas, it's a pretty important part of our, uh, you know, the, how we go about our daily business. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it speaks to one of the challenges that we face in the ESG space in, in general, which is, you know, we have these terms ES and G within it. We have terms like climate or air pollution, water pollution. But in my mind, the boundaries between these concepts are rarely clear, right? So, you started to talk, of course, about how climate can impact water. If we think about, you know, things like burning fossil fuels, it's not just impacting climate, but it's also producing some of the the air pollutants that that you know you alluded to, whether it's mercury emissions or uh, SO2 emissions, things like that. So, uh, in my mind, uh, again, it's it's kind of one of the, you know, perhaps missteps of of the of the ESG space to to try to really put you know, strict barriers uh, or boundaries around some of these concepts. For sure. I mean, you're you're talking about a byproduct in the same way it's a byproduct. CO2 is a byproduct of the process of using fossil fuels, right? But another one of those byproducts, as you allude to, uh, can be mercury in the case of coal. 
Uh, it's certainly ground level ozone, which affects us all, uh, you know, kind of when you think about uh, those sort of heavy days that we've been experiencing uh, with respect to air pollution that's coming from uh, fossil fuels coming out of, uh, you know, it's really tailpipe emissions that's driving a lot of that. Not just uh, the CO2 that's coming out that's affecting, you know, everyone in the world equally in, in many ways uh, because the CO2 just stays in the atmosphere for so long. Uh, but how those local communities, uh, local communities are being affected by the other byproducts of, of, you know, extraction, basically taking things out of the ground. Some of them have different levels of purity and that uh, the cruder the purity, the, the more likely you're going to see some of those emittents come out and, and affect us from a health perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, in, in the beginning, um, you mentioned, of course, Andy, that uh, E can be a little bit easier to measure than perhaps S and G. And I, I kind of wanted to go back to that um, and discuss how it is that we actually measure performance on some of these environmental topics that we've been talking about, such as climate, you know, water stress, water usage, things like that. And if I may, I'll go back to a quote uh, from you from a, a conference that both of you and I, both you and I were at uh, several weeks ago, where you know you suggested that if your eyes aren't bleeding, perhaps you are not doing the analysis well enough. Is it always that difficult, or do we actually see some of this data being kind of readily available when you're looking at you know company filings or things like that? Sure. Well, I mean, it really varies from company to company. The eye bleeding part comes from you. Every company seems to have their version or their interpretation of the of the data. First of all, the the real driver of this lack of kind of coordination uh, between companies is that they're under different regulations, right? So they're not all required to to report exactly the same thing. Uh, if that was the case, this would be an easier exercise. But there's definitely a uh, a need. Uh, for someone to be, you know, kind of in the harmonization business where you're trying to make sure that everybody uh, is saying the same thing and then being able to compare those things uh, to one another. So uh, there are some things that are far easier to measure and uh, it's it's important to measure them from not just from a climate perspective, but from, you know, an economic perspective. So the efficiency with which a company produces Aluminum, for example, you know, the more they use a lot of electricity and the more electricity they use, uh, the more expensive it is for them to produce it. So it's good to be able to keep track of of how well an, a, a company uses resources to you know, produce their end product. Um, but but as you say, there is there is quite a bit of work that needs to be done. Overall, the, the most companies are 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 trying to disclose you know, information in a pretty straightforward manner but it's but it but making sure that you can compare them apples to apples with with companies in, in other parts of the world uh, can be difficult and does require work absolutely it's it's a it's a great point i think it's one of the things so i've been in the esg space uh since the mid-2000s and i think it's it's one of the areas where we've seen you know tremendous progress in, in my mind. And, and as you suggest, there's still work to be done. But that's really around kind of the standardization standardization of 
disclosure and reporting. So as you suggested, it's it's far from perfect. But if we think back to you know 2006 when I when I started in the space, very few companies were even reporting their greenhouse gas emissions, their scope one emissions, for example. Um, and we didn't necessarily have defined ways of doing that um, at that time, or if, if we did, they were kind of in, in early stages. Since then, we've gotten to the point where, you know, if you look at the S&P 500, just as, as an example, about 450 of the companies in that group are reporting their scope one emissions. So certainly, in my mind, some progress um, has been made in terms of reporting and work remains to be done. And I think a lot of that work remains to be done in, in some of the, you know, the trickier areas, especially around, you know, things like water or, or, or other uh, metrics that, that we look at. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, if you look back even to 2016, the data is not that it has, was pretty Spartan sometimes. So we've come a long way. And, and that's what this, you know, a lot of what ESG is, is trying to get better disclosure, right across across the board. And there's been quite a bit of success in the e-space, uh, as you know, Eric is alluding to, because you're actually having people quantify these these amounts and you know it's a it's a lot easier to compare companies when you're when you are quantifying things uh whereas it's it's harder when you're talking about you know behavioral uh problems or behavioral issues with respect to companies so i think with respect to the three of the e s and g we've the e has come the furthest uh, wouldn't you agree Eric? absolutely the last decade or so absolutely and just as a little bit of teaser for for future episodes uh, obviously, we're here to kind of go through ESG acronym by acronym um, and help, of course, listeners understand all these different acronyms. A lot of the acronyms that we've actually seen kind of come into fruition uh, in the ESG space relate to certain disclosure frameworks. So some of the folks listening may have heard of groups like SASB, TCFD, GRI. These are all things that we'll tackle um, in, in future episodes. So... I guess moving along, Andy, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about some of the metrics uh, that we look at, some of the issues. I guess the next question in my mind is, do these metrics actually impact corporate performance and investor returns? Uh, I would argue they do every day. So uh, that's part of sort of my mandate is to kind of help uh, demonstrate that or show that uh, across sectors. It's really, you need to look at it sector by sector. Uh, you can't really, the world is too complicated to just uh, come up with a, with you know good returns uh, that you you made out of five different groups and, and, and say that this group is better than all the other groups combined, right? So we're really, if you're focused on these spaces, you're trying to focus uh, within the sector, the good actors, the bad, the less than good actors, shall we say, uh, the improving actors. How's that? Um, but yes, I do believe you're seeing uh, some pretty meaningful uh, some uh, a performance that can be quantified across many, many sectors. I think uh, I give you a, a fairly straightforward example where you can understand why uh, environmental performance actually it, it helps the bottom line of the companies. And I, I'll I'll start. There's a couple of them that I could that I could go into, but let's just start with the U.S. utility sector. So utilities as a whole basically get paid by making investments, right? They make investments in new power grid. They make in new infrastructure. Uh, these investments, they 
their billions and billions of dollars worth of investment. They uh, agree with their local area to get paid a certain percentage on each of these investment projects. Uh, but the, basically, the higher the volume from a dollar's perspective of investments, the better return the utilities will have because they're just generating uh, a percentage of income based on the total amount of investment they're making. So if you think about uh, what's going on in the utility space, how are they investing that money today? Well, if you were, you, you told the utility they had to invest $10 billion in, in, the, uh, in infrastructure over the next five to 10 years uh, and ask them where they're gonna put that money, well, the, the, the obvious place from a regulatory standpoint and uh, from an economic standpoint is the renewables and you know ways of improving the grid to enable the renewables. So basically transitioning uh, to to a cleaner cleaner power uh, future for all of us by investing in you know things that are helping drive down emissions for that sector. Yeah, it's it's super interesting, and there's something that's kind of baked into uh, what you were just saying um, of looking at specific industries and the factors that matter most for that industry. And I think when we look at some of the criticism of, of ESG and some of the misinformation that's out there as it pertains to ESG, one of the things that a lot of people suggest is, you know, there's this expectation that all companies address all issues. And when we think about our analysis here at Bloomberg Intelligence and the way we frame it and the way we would encourage, you know, listeners and uh, portfolio managers, et cetera, to kind of think about it is more through an industry specific lens, right? Really trying to identify which topics, whether they be in ES or G, um, are most material to a given industry and to a given business and then building analysis off of that accordingly. Is, is, is that fair? Yes, that's that's totally fair, and and it even goes a little bit beyond that. I more, more recently on uh, the semiconductor sector and how auto semiconductors for electric vehicles again another very kind of uh, kind of well understood transition that's taking place. The electric vehicle is just a you know it's a better car in addition to being a better environmental uh, uh, a better a better way of transporting yourself from an environmental perspective, and how that. Those the the sectors the auto sector is the fastest growing semiconductor sector and that's all being driven by you know and in uh, the clean energy transition. So as Eric has alluded to, yes, you really need to look at this sort of sector by sector. Some uh, sectors it's it's uh, there's a very wide discrepancy between the better actors and the and the worst actors. The most obvious examples are probably steel and aluminum, where obviously uh, companies that are are focused on you know the the whole very long you know play of uh, of taking the iron ore out of the ground, for example, with steel and mixing it with med coal, and you know uh, producing steel in that way has a, a bunch of supply chain issues. Not a, let alone the fact that it's very expensive from an environmental standpoint. And you look at that those kind of companies like a U.S. Steel, and you juxtapose them against the Republic Steel that is focused really on recycling, right? So they their recycling is pretty uh, dependable and rising. So they, they are kind of naturally growing their their business because we are retiring more buildings and you're seeing their, the, the costs of recycling are, from an environmental perspective, are you know up to 10 times lower than they are for uh, making steel fresh out of the ground. So it really does, 
you really do need to look at these things sector by sector and understand that in certain sectors, there's great disparities uh, between the better actors and the, and the worst actors. And, and, and it may be a process-related uh, disparity, whereas as I was mentioning before with the, with the, uh, the utility space, there is, um, you know, it's kind of everyone's out to everyone's out for the same thing, which is how do I increase the amount of spending that I can that I can introduce and, uh, you know, transition quicker from an uh, not only from an environmental standpoint, from, but from an economic standpoint as well. So I, I mentioned also the pushback to ESG. I think that's something that that all of us in the space are keenly aware of and something that we we kind of deal with on a day-to-day basis. I think one of the big concerns um, that people raise who are, you know, perhaps pushing back against ESG or even, you know, from practitioners within the space is the concept of of greenwashing, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, for those who are perhaps not familiar with the term, greenwashing really refers to, you know, companies who may be making, you know, claims about certain environmental attributes or performance that when you really look under the hood, uh, you know, don't really bear fruit, right? So you can think about things like climate targets, for example, where a company will say, oh, we're going to be net zero by 2050. But then when you actually look to see, you know, how the company is going to go about achieving that target, there's no substance there, right? There's no real indication that the company is going to going to transition. I think that's you know a fairly common example of of greenwashing. So, Andy, when you're doing your analysis, you're looking through some you know company reported data and looking through uh, filings, strategies, things like that. How do you think about greenwashing? How do you address it? How do you overcome that in in your analysis? Sure. So, I mean, I think uh, the other thing you worth pointing out, Eric, is that most of these CEOs will not may not be with us on the planet, but they certainly won't be with us uh, in that role in 2050. Right. Fair point. So Absolutely. The, the, <laughs> the, let's hope that they're with us. But uh, but more more importantly, uh, the 30 year tenure of a CEO is very limited in the history of investment uh, investing period. But so. Uh, from a target's perspective, I think it's important to look at how far those targets are out. The further they are out, the the, the more jaundiced you should be in terms of what your uh, the credibility of those targets. Um, a lot of what happens if you really dig into the detail of that is that you find that there's some kind of magic that happens in the last five years that make that make it all work out. You know, so I spent a lot of time digging into the details on these these proposals because you you want to understand how they're thinking, right? How they go about this. You really, from an investor standpoint, honestly, between the next three to five years out is probably as far out as the, the stock market will let you uh, look uh, if you're talking about it from a pure investor standpoint. But you know, there's some continuity there between uh, what's happening in the next three to five years and what happens in the next you know, seven to 10 years. When you get out to, to the 20, 30 year horizons, uh, I, uh, it, it's important to understand like the logic, right? So if they're trying to spend a lot of time uh, touting technologies that don't yet exist uh, in a commercial sense, uh, you should obviously be concerned because they're relying on something that's not built yet, right, to get there. There are uh, usually ways with current technologies to get most of the way there, but there are certainly some industries where, uh, and I think you'll agree with me, Eric, where we just don't have those answers available, right? And so if you think about, I mean, cement is one that comes to mind straight away that 
we don't have the technology to drive that to zero, right? So the the idea that they someone has a, a credible plan to get there by 2050, I mean, it requires hydrogen or requires a very big change in the way we uh, process the, the cement. So um, I think it really depends on the sector. The way I tend to look at it is I look at their, mostly I look at intensity. I really focus on what these companies are doing from an intensity perspective. How are they, how much energy is being required to create whatever output that they have? That could be semiconductors, that could be steel, that could be autos, that could be cement, to any of these kind of uh, different industries. You're looking really at how efficiently they're able to produce these things. Yeah, climate targets are are tricky. Um and it's an area where you know we've spent a lot of time trying to you know provide uh, insights for for our clients around you know what what some of these climate targets mean and and I I ultimately agree Andy and and I think you know, one of the the sad realities that we see is even if you take a company's word that they're going to be able to achieve the cuts that they're pledging to achieve most are not even saying they're going to meet the reductions necessary for us to maintain warming to you know 1.5 degrees, for example. So we have our BI carbon analysis uh, where we essentially take company stated targets. We use that to inform forecasts in terms of where companies will be with their emissions uh, in the years 2030, 2050. Uh, it gives us a great view in terms of kind of strategy and how they may be positioned relative to their peers. Uh, but it also allows us to look to see if if these companies are um, it, at least even trying or claiming they're going to meet a temperature aligned benchmark. And what we see when we look at, you know, about uh, 400 of the top emitting companies across the globe in the most carbon intensive industries, only about a third even say they're going to meet such a benchmark. So uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit disheartening, um, I think, from, from both sides. And you, of course, alluded to the side where, you know, companies are making claims that, that are unlikely um, for them to be able to achieve. And then even if you kind of uh, build your analysis on the assumption that companies can be successful in achieving these targets, oftentimes the targets are kind of well short of, of what we need in order to address climate change. So um, pretty disheartening, I would say, in, in that respect. I, I would I would add as a benefit, Eric, uh, is that what the, you're doing, with the work that we do with BI Carbon should be, uh, it's very important for anyone who's modeling what's going on with climate. So like from a, from just from a public policy perspective, this is, this work is what, you know, companies, it's companies that are going to basically get us, uh, you know, to these lower emission targets. I mean, they're the ones that are having to do the work to transform these industries. The, com the countries themselves can guide them, but we need to, it, this is, uh, this is uh, a very kind of import, uh, important reality, you know, reality call for where we are in the process and how kind of urgent things need to, to transform for us to get onto a track that allows us to, you know, be below one and a half or even two degrees C. Absolutely. No, it's a, it's a fair point. And I did not intend to, to cast a pessimistic sm spell over, over everything. So I, I guess, you know, we, we've talked a lot about, you know, some of the key 
issues within E. We've talked about how they can be measured. We've talked a little bit about greenwashing and the, the pushback. Andy, as a as a former portfolio manager, I'm super curious to hear your thoughts on how investors can actually incorporate e-issues, the associated metrics into investment strategies. And as a follow-on, if it's possible, which I know you'll say it is, why hasn't it been done more broadly to date? Sure. So, I mean, I I was a portfolio manager for a number of years, many, many years, but uh, very focused on climate the last uh, several years. And the, the, what investors, every investor will tell you is they need data to support the investment strategies that they're going to be in. There's, you certainly can, you can talk about thematic strategies and how these are, you know, a, a very large transition and this and that, but you really need data in order to kind of get down to the weeds and find, find the companies that you're supposed to be investing in, the ones you're supposed to be avoiding, right? So that's sort of, from an investor's standpoint, that's sort of critical information. And I think a lot of, broadly speaking, uh, many have not adopted, uh, you know, looking at this in in the kind of granularity that, that we're hoping to, you know, introduce here at Bloomberg, um, is because the data is sometimes annual and oftentimes annual. And for an invest, you know, if you're going to invest in a company, it's very hard to invest in a company with annual data, uh, based on a- annual data. Um, so a lot of the data that I have relied on and I'm trying to introduce as I kind of roll things out that is really looking at, you know, monthly or quarterly data to, in order to uh, provide, you know, some signal strength to the investment theses around different sectors of the economy, right? So this is something that does drive performance. I, the, the, I'm feature, we're, we're featuring something called Climate Alpha on the terminal that looks at uh, the different sectors. And I'm basically kind of rolling out uh, ways of looking at the sector with uh, more frequency in terms of the data that you can see and how that uh, you can use that data as a signal for uh, really in isolation to understand if it has any positive or negative impact on the performance of a given sec- sector or more importantly, subsector. Uh, so it really starts with data and it really starts with uh, data that you can uh, produce on a more regular basis. So it's the frequency that I think is what's lacking. Uh, a lot of people you know, talk about it. And Eric was mentioning my eye bleed uh, conversation. That really is, uh, you have to do that work in order to actually be able to sit down and say, okay, I have uh, investable framework. I have data that is with timely enough for me to understand that this is not just luck, right? I mean, if, if you do annual data, even if you're looking at 50 years, that's only 50 data points, right? That's not a lot. And a lot of other things are going on in that 50-year time period, apart from your specific, uh, the thing that you care about, right? So it's really a understanding each sector, as Eric alluded to earlier, is it sort of an independent variable. You have to kind of understand that each uh, sector has data that's kind of localized to that sector. And there is ways of getting more frequent data. It could be segment level revenue, for example. It can be data from the government. Uh, I do a lot of data, government data that you can get monthly that helps you understand the the emissions profile of companies in a more timely fashion. But it really comes down to a, a better understanding of the frequency of the data available. And then you really have an open field. I mean, one of the things that's interesting from this perspective is that 
Many people are looking at alternative data as a way for them to have an edge over their peers. This is a very, very big alternative data space. I mean, there's just a, there's, you know, I, the vast majority of the market cap of the world, apart from a few tech companies, um, has has an environmental footprint that can be traced, right? So you're looking at, uh, uh, you know, uh, trillions and trillions of dollars of, of, of market cap of companies that are uh, involved in this space. It doesn't have to be the oil and gas sector, as I mentioned, it could be the semiconductor sector, it could be the EV sector, solar, wind, et cetera. These are all areas where having an alternative data, uh, data sets uh, is helpful because it, it adds some color and adds texture to your thesis around these areas anyway. So you're trying to basically, how can I improve returns by thinking about things from a climate perspective? And these are the data sets that we're trying to introduce uh, at Bloomberg to help you understand that on a more frequent basis. Great. Well, I think that brings us to a close. Um, just want to tell our listeners, of course, that you can find more information on a lot of the things that we discussed uh, today, such as uh, Andy's work on Climate Alpha, BI Carbon, and all things related to uh, the E in ESG on our dashboard, which is BI space ESG Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. Also, if you have an ESG quandary or burning question that you'd like to ask either Andy or myself or any of the experts on our team, please send us an email at esgcurrents at bloomberg.net. And until next time, thanks so much for listening. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.